I gotta ask because I feel like the setting is begging for it. What's your relationship with death? A comfortable one. Yeah? It's a comfortable one. It's a it's an understanding. You can't have life without death, can't have life without the dark. Right? So it's an acceptance of that. When it came time to decide whether or not I should retire, that's really an acceptance mm -hmm. of that mortality that all athletes face. Right? And if you combat it, you'll have always that inner struggle within yourself. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. And, uh, so it's a, uh, I'm comfortable with it. Welcome to the Brave Little Podcast. Joining me from Los Angeles, Aaron. It's been a sad couple of days. It it has. This is a somber intro. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty surreal. I mean, this is it's crazy. I mean, everyone's been talking about it. So, uh, one of the legends of basketball, legend of sports, one of the great, the biggest stars in American history, I think, Kobe Bryant. Passed away tragically in a helicopter accident uh, with his daughter and eight other passengers. Um, surreal, man. What can you say? It's 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 honestly hard to believe. I mean, it happened what two days ago. I, I still still really hasn't sunk in for me. Um, it's it's wild. I mean, I, I I can't even listen to my favorite podcast because they're all doing it's all Kobe centric, and I'm not ready for it. So I've been kind of avoiding, but uh, I think. Uh, because it's just, it hurts, it hurts too much, and it's still too close, you know. I mean, even for me, I wasn't always the biggest Laker fan. Um, I didn't really get into basketball until I was a little bit older. Um, I was always a baseball fan first, but uh, once the Lakers started winning, I started to watch more, and obviously I was a fan of Kobe. I mean, I remember when, when we drafted him, had to go to Eddie Jones, who was the up-and-comer. He was the original Kobe, um, and then we drafted Kobe, and uh, I was a fan pretty much right away. He was he was a special player for sure. So to see uh, all the stuff that he got to achieve, it was, I mean, it, it literally brought this the city together. I think um, at the height of the the peak of the Lakers and their runs, you could you could basically go anywhere in public and someone was talking about the Lakers. Like it was just constant. It was everywhere. You go in any store, Lakers is on. If a Laker game was on, it was on the TV. Uh, from a liquor store to the gas station to Subway to any anywhere. People just want to watch the Lakers. I mean, this is a Laker town, first and foremost. Um, and I think that uh, losing Kobe is just... I mean, he's 41 years old, man. 41. It's crazy. It doesn't even make any sense. Um, and I think the, the city's still reeling. I, I, I mean, there's memorials everywhere. Um, Staples Center. Uh, they're talking about holding a public service and... It's obviously going to be too big for Stable Center, so they're looking for a, a bigger venue. But it's just like everyone in the city basically has feels a connection to Kobe and the Lakers. And even if you're not a huge basketball fan, he's a part of the fabric of, of Los Angeles. Um, so it, it's hit us hard, I think. Um, I mean, you, even you as a Laker hater, I think uh, it had an impact on you, right? It's wild. It's really wild. I, I, I can't even tell you how much it's impacted me. Yeah, Uh to me, Kobe has been the the enemy. You know, not Kobe the person, but Kobe the player. Um, my the the best, you know, the very very best version of my favorite team, the Sacramento Kings, could never get past Kobe and Shaq and that Laker team. And you know, sports fandom is such that you grow to hate, you know, who you can't defeat. You you hate the greatness of the the players on the teams that you need to get past to get your championship and. 
and Kobe stood in the way for several <laughs> years, and it uh, it was easy to hate him because of how good he was. But of course, with that hate, there's this you know this underlying respect for how good of a player he truly is. What I didn't realize though was how just I don't know I, my mental and physical response to the to the news of you know part of it is certainly tied to the fact that. You know, it's with his daughter and with these, uh, uh, you know, I think it was nine. Was it nine people I think total? It was nine total, yeah. Just the devastating nature of it. Um, I mean, I was sitting, I was lying in bed Sunday morning, just going through Twitter and you know, texting friends and whatnot. And you shared an article to that to the TMZ, who was the very first to publish it. And at first, it was complete disbelief, and I just believed that they got this wrong no one else was reporting this this helicopter crash uh, certainly not reporting that Kobe Bryant was inside of it and for about 15 minutes I was certain that this wasn't going to be the case that this wasn't reality until it started being confirmed by multiple you know other news outlets and as it was slowly unfolding it was just setting in of like wait what Kobe Bryant like if you were just to if you made a list of the most significant athletes uh, current or former that are alive today, right? Like Kobe's just towards the very top, if not the very top, right? I mean, of all the sports, of course, there's Michael Jordan. I mean, you have giants in other, but like Kobe is on that Mount Rushmore, you know, especially if we're talking about basketball. I mean, it's just of all of the people this could happen to, of all of the, like, it's just, it was just real disbelief. And then it, this for me, the sadness set in. Just like, oh, we were, we were robbed of this individual far too early because Kobe already was contributing to other like industries, other art forms. I mean, yes, he won an Oscar for that um, that uh, short animated short that he did. But um, you know, today we're going to be talking about this film uh, by the Safdie brothers, starring Adam Sandler, called Uncut Gems, and part of this the making of this film, there's a story involved, involves Kobe Bryant. And we're going to talk about that, about how he was circling the role of Kevin Garnett at one point, uh, well, the role that Kevin Garnett eventually plays. And he ended up not doing it because he wanted to direct. And I remember hearing that story for the first time, which was several weeks ago. I remember laughing, thinking like, of course, Kobe's going to, you know, he, he got into tech investing and is like being is dominant there. He's going to tackle any of these mediums. And with that same, ferocity that he tackled basketball and he's going to master it and it's like yeah we saw Michael Jordan is the you know the comparable like competitor in that sense but like what else has Jordan done beyond basketball really I mean I guess he tried to well, conquer gambling but didn't really do well there <laughs> I was going to say uh, cigar smoking golfing. cigar smoking yeah eating well, I mean yeah yeah um, exactly but he, <laughs> but just even team ownership I don't think he's mastered uh, the, that at all. But just this idea that like, like Kobe was so f- f- like he was retired from the NBA, but his life and what what he was planning to accomplish and what he was capable of compl- accomplishing really knew no limit. And just this idea that like, oh, Kobe was telling the Safdie brothers that he wasn't interested in starring in their movie because he really wants to direct a feature length film. One, to have that audacity that you can do that. OK, only Kobe. And two, deep down, I know that Kobe could probably direct a really good film. And I know that. And I know because he would like put in the work to study and he would like ask every single famous filmmaker that he's friends with or whatever. And he would just, he would do all of that work to probably, you know, 
create some masterwork and I'd be left shaking my head again. Um, and now with this terrible, tragic news, I'm left just wondering what could have been for any of these mediums of which Kobe was going to conquer. And it really, really, really makes me sad. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, obviously his family, uh, you think about them first and that's a huge loss. And, yeah. and of course, I mean, that's the primary focus, but if you expand, uh, you know, just talking about Kobe, the, the, I don't want to even say athlete. Like he's he transcends just being an athlete because yeah. obviously he had his hands in way more things. His life was just getting started. He just retired a few years ago. Um, f- again, forty one years old, just getting started about th- this next chapter in his life of becoming a creator, a storyteller. Um, because I mean, w- what's really interesting about Kobe is like if you ever listen to him in long form interviews or um, even he had that one documentary where. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but he basically is recovering from a major injury and it's going through He's going over his life and just to hear him speak about um, basically his life's philosophy. I mean, it's it, he's he's really a profound, deep individual um, and um, he's someone that uh, he, he's a thinker. I think it's that's pretty obvious. Like he's he's someone that has put a lot of thought into everything. Um, and obviously, like the number one thing about him is his his work ethic and his commitment um that was like his he he was a fierce competitor like maybe the league has never seen before no sport has ever seen before i mean that's like the primary thing that everyone can agree on he's the greatest competitor of all time um in the nba and so that that mindset obviously he was going to take that to any other venture that he was passionate about any other field um and i think that's that's really what's uh what uh, what's disappointing to me is that we didn't get to see what that next step was, where he was really going to get passionate about something and and um, excel and, and really commit himself to doing something else. I think it w- would be film or TV. I think he was trending that way. Um, I think he just recently wrote a book. Um, so I mean, it's just it, again, it's really hard to fathom. Um, it's been hard to think about because it's just like anytime I see an old clip, it takes me back. Like personally, this is the guy that I really grew up watching. When I was a kid, a teenager, basically, he was a teenager as a Laker. So uh, seventeen, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was wild to basically grow up parallel to him, to see him take over the city, take over the sport, become a Lakers legend, um, win win five rings, <laughs> five rings. It's just, it's unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, for me, he's obviously I'm biased, but he's the greatest player that I've ever seen, greatest basketball player. Um, and I don't think that I'm ever going to see anyone like him again. He was just, he was so special. There's, there was never a moment where he was on the basketball court where I felt like he couldn't do what he wanted to do. Yeah, it's so, okay. Obviously, he's going to miss some shots. But I felt like if Kobe wanted to win or, or if Kobe had it in his mind that he was going to do something, he was going to do it. Like, you know, he was almost a superhuman that way. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's crazy to think that he's gone and, and um, all we have left are uh, well, thankfully we, there is a lot of film on him and there's a lot of interviews yeah. and and I think that um, we're lucky that we get to look back and hear his direct words and his thoughts and get a peek into his brain and what what, what drove him uh, because he was a special individual. So, well, you you, you had alluded to this earlier in the, in, our, in the conversation about what he meant to that city, to Los Angeles, that community. Um, there are few 
like comparable examples of athletes and relationship they have to their city that are like copies to Los Angeles. I think maybe Jeter to New York City. Um, I wouldn't even say Michael to Chicago. I think Michael got out of Chicago as soon as he didn't have uh, an obligation to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, he means something to that to Chicago, that city, certainly, but uh, not, not in the same way that Kobe did. Um, and it's, it's. I mean, if you think about it, LeBron James, obviously, he's going to mean more to Cleveland than he ever will to even to Miami or, or Los Angeles. Because uh, he's from there, he's the hometown kid. He won them their first title, et cetera, et cetera. But even LeBron James, you know, will go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest ever. You know, he comes to LA, and the joke is that the community is reticent to embrace him. Okay, that, that because he's not Kobe. That, like, exactly. Like, what other fan base would be hesitant to embrace LeBron James? Okay, than Los Angeles because he's not Kobe. Like. That's how Kobe, a retired player. Okay, this is, right, exactly. And it's not like they had a feud or anything. No. It was just the fact that no. they, yeah, it's the fact that anyone had the audacity to say that Kobe wasn't better than, than yes. LeBron. Well, like, think about like when we first got LeBron. There, someone like they put up a mural like the, the day that we got him, and the next day someone defaced it. It was yeah. like a Kobe fan. Yeah. <laughs> What what I was mean, what did they write? He's not Kobe or something. Not Kobe. something like that. Yeah. Something well, I think like that, that what it was was LeBron had a crown on his head. You know, King yeah. James, and I think that's like that that pissed off Laker fans. So I'm just. I mean, Kobe's king. So I mean, it's hilarious. It, yeah, I mean, of course it, it's it it's funny. I mean, there's these videos online called Game of Zones, which I these animated NBA funny skits that uh, that I, I find hilarious. They did, they did a whole bit on Los Angeles Laker fandom. You know. Uh, basically, the the scene is bringing it this triumphant entry into the city with uh, LeBron James, and the crowd is booing him because he's not Kobe, right? And it's it's, re- it's funny, but it's, it's funny because it's true. I mean, like, I, I realize this; it's not perfectly comparable, but imagine a scenario where LeBron James decides to come to Sacramento, and we are like, "You're not Chris Webber, okay?" I know Chris <laughs> Webber didn't win us five rings, but he's the most beloved player that's ever played sure. in the franchise, certainly the best. Um, but like just the fact that like even if Weber won us championships, uh, there's just no way we respond in the same way that LA does. And I think that's every fan base. So just knowing that like the the loyalty, that fierce loyalty, that was reciprocated, certainly. Um, but what that community had towards him, I can't imagine how I mean, we see the photos of everyone outside of Staples. It's 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 gotta just be terrible. Uh, you mentioned and your neighbor even knocked on the door and just wanted yeah. to talk Kobe. It's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, you know, um, I live in an apartment building here, and and uh, one of my neighbors all occasionally talk Lakers with him. And um, the that day that happened, I mean, he just knocked on my door, and we just talked about it for like half an hour. Just just talked about memories of, of uh, you know both of us, you know, being a similar age growing up and and watching him and what he meant to us because that's the thing, like everyone that was a Laker fan has a connection to Kobe. That's really what makes him so special. And I think that's what makes sports in general so special. I think that sports is, is, is important. And I think it is special because you feel a connection to these, these players. Um, and no one knows why. I mean, yeah, you can be a winner or you can be good at the game, but some players you don't have a connection to Kobe Bryant. We all had a connection to, I think the game itself had a connection to him. And, 
you know, losing him, it feels like the game is not the same. It feels like there is definitely something missing. And he wasn't even a player. Like, he was he was retired for two, three years already. Yeah. So, so it's that's the type of impact. That's the type of connection that this, an icon, like a legend like that, has. Um, again, on the city, on the people here, um, the game itself, uh, the franchise, everything was connected to him in some way. And that's that's why this this loss feels so so massive to all of us. I think it's uh, it's why it's so hard to fathom, really. But uh, it's it sucks, man. Yeah. It's real, and uh, life goes on, I guess. But man, it sucks. It does. But this is going to be this is a moment, certainly in basketball history, that is going to be. Uh, while we'll move on from it, it's going to be. I don't know a reference point, really. I mean. It's the dark. It's the saddest moment in the history of the NBA, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's yeah. I mean, his legacy was always going to be this, the a gigantic thing in the in the annals of NBA history, regardless of when he passed. But this premature passing certainly makes it an even bigger, um, I don't know, a, a bigger moment in in the history of his life in the in the, in the league and you know it's gonna be interesting to see um how that's the current lakers i i you know i i realize this matters very little in the grand scheme of things we we're talking about the death of nine people in a helicopter and how tragic and unlikely something like this would be but um it's also just it's also i think interesting to wonder how the current team's going to respond how the NBA yeah there's responds. no there there's no doubt that it's going to have a huge effect on the team yeah um, season's about halfway over, so who knows what kind of ripple effect it's going to have. I mean, it legitimately could throw off the entire balance of the team. I mean, it, it could be a huge distraction. We know all the players had a connection to him. Um, I mean, he, he was just at the game the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone beloved. He was beloved by everyone on the court. You saw the impact that it had around the league instantly. The players um, choking up on the court. Um I mean, that's just the impact that he had. Uh, it, it's just, it's hard to fully grasp how big of a, how big of a weight that he carried around on his shoulders. And he did it willingly. Like, that that's the one thing above all he understood. I think, I believe that he understood his legacy and his impact on, on the world. And I think he relished it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why he was so deeply philosophical and why he such a big thinker um or that contributed to that um and i think that's one of the reasons he was going to go on to do greater things because he understood his legacy and he wanted to make it even bigger so and truly I, a special I person i don't want to tire out the the comparisons to michael jordan but i do think it's worth noting the way people live their post nba retirement lives and the impact they choose to have and look everyone's lives are theirs to live and I completely understand if someone like Michael Jordan would want to step away from the game and not choose to have an active impact. That's fine. Um, obviously, he is an owner now, and he's been involved in some capacity of the NBA off and on. But Kobe's role I, was just was decidedly different um, in the immediate term right after his retirement than, than Michael's. And it's really fascinating to see how and why that is, especially with two players that of comparable greatness, I'd say. Um, how they choose to continue to impact the game. Um, and yeah, 
it's that is what makes it all the more devastating is because I in my mind, I just assumed Kobe was going to be this Kareem Abdul-Jabbar type figure that's always been around. Even Bill Russell, just you see them in the stands. They're all, they're always going to be on TV and the national televised games sitting nearby. The camera's always going to cut to them. They're talking to players. They're getting, you know, they're coaching someone up or giving advice or just giving encouragement. They're at All-Star Weekend, just these figures that are looming and ever-present present in, in just in NBA um, everything. Like, I just assumed that was Kobe forever. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to believe that he wasn't going to live another 41 years. So, I mean, oh, yeah. you could easily envision someone of his health. I mean, he's in extreme health, um, still worked out tirelessly. Um, and I think that he did. So, right when after he retired, he kind of did step away from the game a little bit. And I think because he was worn out. Um, sure. And he, uh, his his daughter that was with him that passed uh, on the crash, or in the crash, she she uh, has a passion, or she had a passion for basketball too. And I think that he started coaching her this past mm-hmm. year, and um, I think that reignited his passion for the game, um, from what I understand. And I think that's really was the driver to bring him back. Yeah. And to get involved with the Lakers again and get involved with the league. Because he hadn't been at Staples Center. Uh, right. That's the, right. In, in yeah. the initial retirement. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems because to be if, the case for most people immediately after. They step away yeah. for a bit. But yeah. how they choose to reinsert themselves is what's interesting. But yeah. Yeah. And specifically, he came back with her. Like, he would go to the games with that, with his daughter. And they were there courtside. And mm-hmm. and uh, she just loved basketball the way that he did. And um, it's just so sad that, you know. It's sad to say. It really is. To lose them like that. So. Well. We're gonna we're gonna keep talking basketball, but in the context of movies, we're gonna talk Uncut Gems, the Safdie brothers film, um, starring Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett. Uh, Superstar in his own right, Kevin Garnett. Is he? I mean, he has <laughs> he has a ring, right? Now, can I? Yeah, he does have one. Um, mm-hmm. He played in two finals. Two finals series, right? Both against the isn't that two, 08 and ten against the Lakers? Yes. Yeah, he beat us once, and we beat him. And then once you beat them once. Yeah yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of Kevin Garnett, let me just throw this out there. In Uncut Gems, Kevin Garnett, who plays himself, okay, so one would say maybe it's worth grading on a curve if you're playing a character versus oneself, but be it, be it as it may. Does Kevin Garnett provide the greatest performance in cinema by an athlete? Yes, that was my initial reaction. That's the first what? thing I thought. Yeah, you're gonna say yes. Out of the movie. Just unequivocally, yes. He's <sighs> to see an athlete, even if he's playing himself. Okay. To see him so natural, to see him just have the presence on screen to perform at that level in this movie and. Typically, when you see an athlete in a movie, they take you out of the scene, whatever they're doing. Even if they're playing, even if they're on the field or on the court, you know, doing the their profession, it'll take you out of a movie. But Kevin Garnett in this movie, like the, this is the very first sequence that we see him in, where he's in that the jewelry store. He's incredible. He is absolutely, he is a star on that screen. He is a performer and it shows. Um, he was just, he couldn't, I don't think that there's anyone else that have, any other athlete that uh, could have performed at his level that he did in this uh, movie. So I think I give him the greatest performance of an athlete in a movie ever. Wow. Well, 
<laughs> there have been a lot of buzz about his performance, and I don't want to just jump in straight on that specific thing. I do want to back up a little bit and talk about the Safdie brothers, um, kind of give a little bit of a history of their uh, filmmaking journey and how we arrived at Uncut Gems, and then I want to really go, you know, sink our teeth into uh, talking about this film, which those of you who have not listened to our top 10 films of 2019 podcast, um, this is the film that Aaron had at number one. So uh, we had, we're a little late to getting it out in terms of when it was released uh, wide, but this was Aaron's favorite film, which means absolutely we have to have a podcast dedicated to it. Uh, but I, there was a lot of buzz about Kevin Garnett's performance. It absolutely delivered. I think it was even better than I was, than my, my high hopes. My high, I had very, very high expectations, and he exceeded them. He's really, really good in this. Uh, the Safties are great at just finding the people to put in their movies generally. And, and they have a history of this. And I'm not talking about <clears throat> the Adam Sandlers necessarily, or the big names like Robert Pattinson in Good Time, which was the last film that they made. Uh, I'm talking about even the characters on the periphery. I'm talking about the supporting roles. Uh, now, uh, uh, let's talk about the Safties for a little bit here. This the, this is a New York. These are um, two brothers. Uh, what are they? 34 and 38, something like that in the mid-30s. Um, born and raised in, I believe, Queens and Manhattan. So the uh, New York City area. I think they were... Their parents were divorced, and so they split time in Manhattan and Queens. But safe to say that, that their upbringing was uh, decidedly New York City. Um, <laughs> well, you lived in New York for a while. Which would you say is the better borough, Manhattan or Queens? Oh, do you give me Manhattan? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to take Manhattan over Queens. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, let's say uh, uh, Uncut Gems is a Manhattan movie because uh, it's about the Diamond District. A good time feels like a Queens film. Put it oh, that yeah, way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so these are two They Both of them went to Boston University. Uh, neither of them studied film, but they were obsessed with movies. I guess that comes from their father. Uh, and they started making kind of this... Um, they started making their own low-budget indie films that started to get buzz in like the independent indie film kind of community, eventually landing, landing them at Cannes and Tribeca and some of these film festivals. Uh, with a film called Daddy Longlegs. It was their first one that they made together. Um, then they had the opportunity to do a documentary uh, on the basketball, the prep basketball phenom Lenny Cook, who was a basketball player that was in the same class as uh, Carmelo Anthony, Amari Stoudemire, LeBron James. Um, and he was up there with them in terms of, you know, how he was, how he was scouted his rating and whatnot. And, uh, he never panned out at, at the NBA level, and they made this documentary, which I, I love a film like a filmography uh, from any filmmaker that includes documentaries. I mean, Scorsese is famous for n not just sticking to the narrative filmmaking medium, um, but choosing to be able to tell stories in multiple ways. It's amazing that they were able to make this documentary, especially as early on in their career as they did, and be able to to make this. It actually ended up opening some doors for them in the future. I, th I think this film was very popular with athletes and NBA athletes. So when they were trying to cast the Kevin Garnett role, this is the movie that really helped open the door to having a conversation with some of the uh, NBA athletes that were kind of circling that part. But um, after Lenny Cook, they made a film called Heaven Knows What, uh, which is a film about uh, a homeless drug addict in New York City the film is based on a real-life person. She actually plays herself in the film. They met her. I don't remember the whole story, uh, but they 
uh, they were fascinated by her life story and so they crafted this film around it and so it's based on uh, her life and it's pretty gritty uh, this is where they really start to establish themselves as kind of this certain style of filmmaking that um, maybe isn't for everyone um, but it is very very uh, gritty is probably oversimplifying it but certainly this um, authentic look of the of the st- on the streets in New York City uh, so much so that it got the t- the attention of Robert Pattinson, who saw this film, heaven knows what, and and basically got his agent to contact the Safdie brothers and say, whatever you're making next, I want in. And it doesn't matter if it has a budget or not. I don't, you know, I, I just want in, and which is amazing because Robert Pattinson at this point just, he's, a, he's we know now, an incredibly talented actor, but at this time is trying to shed the whole twilight, <laughs> the shadow essentially that was, over, you know, um, kind of towering over his career from being in those Twilight films. That's all people knew him as. And and he was, who knew that he ended up being a really, really talented actor. Uh, and so he met with the Safdies who were working on Uncut Gems at the time and said, "We this role isn't really right for you, but we'll, you know, we'll keep talking for future projects until Uncut Gems got delayed and they had time to make their next film, which was Good Time. This was actually my introduction to the Safdie brothers. I don't know when you got introduced to them, but you were the one that told me to watch this film. And I remember thinking, Robert Pattinson, no thanks. And you were like, no, you don't understand. Watch this movie. And so uh, I'm curious, is this your introduction to the Safties as well? Yeah, it sure was. So I had heard about them before. I'd never seen any of their earlier work. Um, but I had I'd heard about them, and then I saw the tra- this trailer for Good Time when it dropped. I was like, oh, man, this is this could be something good. Um, so yeah, this, this movie, uh, as soon as I watched it, I was like, you know, you get 10 minutes into it and you're like, oh man, this is, this is exactly the type of movie that I love. And I think what, what really makes this Safdie special is, uh, is the fact that they do make New York movies in the style of like a Martin Scorsese or, uh, basically like he's, he's like their grandfather essentially it, it because Scorsese made these New York films and then the eighties, there was New York filmmakers and then the nineties. And then there was like a period of there was no really authentic New York movies. It was just kind of like bigger budget stuff set in New York. And now I feel like we're back because of the Safties. They're making New York movies from, I mean, from the New York perspective, New Yorker perspective. These guys, they're authentic. They're the real deal. They grew up there. They understand the streets. And what really captured me about Good Time was just the frenetic pace. How it just feels like you're constantly on edge. You're never comfortable. Um, it's dark. It's gritty. It's uh, it's seedy. You're breaking the law constantly. Uh, someone's always in trouble. There's always there's always some sort of scam that's going on. They're constantly lying. Or Robert Pattinson is like constantly lying. He's just looking to uh, like jump from lily pad to lily pad. Like he's a frog essentially. He's just trying to figure out his next jump because he has nothing planned. Um, he's flying by the seat of his pants. He's just trying to get his brother out to save his brother. And I think that's like a, that's really, it really spoke to me the way that it was so gritty and dark and the brotherly connection that he has in this movie. And of course the Safties being brothers themselves and one of them starring in the movie, I think it just lends it to it perfectly. Uh, yeah. So good time was an incredible movie. It's, I think it's brilliant. It's, uh, it's one of so my good. favorite movies that I've seen so in good. the past 10 years. So now uh, we're going to talk about uncut gems and, um, and how much you loved it. And I certainly did too. It was in my top 10. Uh, I will say though, Good Time is remains my favorite Safdie Brothers uh, film. Um, I mean, with time, you know, Uncut Gems could certainly be it, but 
good time is, <laughs> yeah it's everything i don't want to rehash everything you said but it had me at the like second five of the film where i was just like what am i watching i mean the the film the scene opens up with this conversation between robert Pat- pattinson's brother who's played by benny safty who is um he is this individual that like, clearly has um uh, I don't know if it's a handicap or disability um, mentally. And he's having a conversation with what appears to be some sort of social worker or some sort of government. I don't know if it's a psychiatrist or what exactly this individual, but something, some bureaucratic kind of state level social worker who's asking him these questions that are kind of making this character kind of uncomfortable. But the thing that I couldn't stop thinking about in that scene wasn't the questions wasn't it was just the actual actor cast in that role of the social worker and i'm looking at him thinking like there's no way this is an actor that they found from like an open casting call or something because he's perfect but he looks like someone that you would expect in this role we're so used to in any movie we're just used to hollywood people having a certain look okay um and so i stopped the movie Okay, because I didn't see it in theaters. This is, you know, it's already on digital. I stopped the movie. I Google IMDb. I'm looking. This is the first thing I do, and I look up the guy's name who's playing that role. And sure enough, how many other movies has he played in on IMDb? None, because <laughs> because the dude in the role is the Safety brothers. Uh, he is one of their attorneys, um, and <laughs> and he lives in New York City. They've known him for however long. And, and I'm in fact I'm reading. I Google the guy's name, and up pops the story of of Josh Safty in the middle of filming Good Time. Um, the cops arrest him because they thought he was dealing drugs out of this like shady looking car, and and so there's like a mugshot and everything. And his attorney that represented him in trying to like explain the situation was that guy, the guy that played. Um, the the role of the social worker and it's a guy that that lives in Queens New York that isn't some glamorous attorney or anything like that he's not some Hollywood attorney he's just like a you know a lower level kind of uh, you know straight out of Queens looking person and you see that throughout Good Time you're like oh they're they're casting people that live in New York City they're casting people that are that you would expect to see um, the Safties do that tenfold in uncut gems right and this is the thing that i i really wonder why more directors don't do it because it's so i mean i guess you have to be good at finding people that are still good at acting um like that's not easy to do i'm sure i'm I'm sure there's no shortage of people being willing to do it but how good they will be in your film is a whole nother thing but i noticed that immediately in uncut gems was they're doing the same thing they did in good time is that they are filling the diamond district with people that actually look like they work and live around the diamond district Oh yeah, and absolutely. So, and I think yeah. that's a huge, that's a huge factor in um, the realism feel to it. The, the, the kind of world building, you feel like you're actually in the diamond district in, in New York. Um, you know, who's another, uh, another director that does that is uh, Ben Affleck in the town, the no townies. That, oh, no kidding. Yeah. So, and same thing with gone baby gone. So, I mean, if you look at the, um, the background actors, they're literally townies. They're literally people that grew up in that area. And wow. I think it just adds a, a, this this realism, this, like, this feeling of authenticity. Um, and I think a movie like Good Time needed that. Obviously, Uncut Gems, it, it absolutely needed that realism to sell you on this whole story. And um, it's brilliant. I think especially in Uncut Gems, they, the, the background players, the small bit parts, they, they stand out. And they're so memorable. Um, and if there was, if it was just a regular character actor in those roles, you wouldn't remember them. I don't think, Yeah. but it's because you see 
that it looks like real people in these parts that it sticks with you and it feels like wow um these people are authentic and uh they're scary <laughs> some of them are very frightening oh yeah i mean incredibly frightening so Uncut Gems, I will say, is um, it's akin to Good Time in the sense that it is a film with a frenetic energy. It's chaotic. It's fast paced. It's edge of your seat. I mean, I was sweating when I was watching it. Uh, I was sitting there just like, what is happening? Where, you know, and I knew what to expect from having watched Good Time. Now, I don't know about you in terms of the theater you were in and how people were responding to it. But I was I I was conditioned. I knew what this film generally was going to feel like, having been familiar with this Afty Brothers work. But I could tell that my theater wasn't totally prepared for for the ride they're about to go on, because from the get go, from I'd say a very memorable opening sequence, you are on this nonstop ride that isn't just a ride. I wouldn't even call it a roller coaster. I mean, you're watching. Um you're watching this this degenerate individual played by Adam Sandler make a series of terrible choices both personally and professionally and you're watching things unravel little by little until it's a lot by a lot um until you know things really just come crashing down and um and you're waiting for him to have his break for his moment um of victory you know, you're you're watching a character, quite frankly, is loathsome. And, uh, you know, we can have a debate about whether or not you want you're rooting for this individual played by Adam Sandler. I can tell you my theater was they wanted Adam Sandler to win because they're, they're looking at the Adam Sandler from Happy Gilmore or from Murder <laughs> Mystery on Netflix or what, you know. This. Well, yeah, I mean, that's right. Wasn't the audience score of the movie like really low, really low yeah. on, on Rotten Tomatoes? It's got a 92 percent from critics. So certified fresh, very high. The uh, audience score is 52%. That's okay. incredible. That's that is, That's blowing my mind. 52%. Oh. So, I, I mean, I'll tell you. I mean, we're not going to spoil, uh, I don't think, here what happens no, in the end or what it all comes to, down to. But I will, I will just say the sum of this, the, <laughs> this, this film's parts um, wasn't a satisfactory experience for a lot of people in my theater. And that was known due to the audible groans as we're walking out. And just me, oh, I mean, this is anecdotal, but listening to the conversations of the people around me, I was like laughing, just like some people really didn't love um, the experience the Safdies took them on just because of how stressful it was to watch. It was truly stressful, but it's also something m marvelous just from a filmmaking and storytelling standpoint. You're watching something that is like, uh, I mean, it's just a shot of adrenaline. It really is. Yeah, and I think, you know, we talked about the background actors and we talked about Kevin Garnett's performance. But really, this movie is filled with great performances, like top to bottom. There, there isn't one bad performance. Um, from I think it starts with Adam Sandler. He's incredible. I don't think he's ever been better than he has in this movie. But yeah, just overall, the performances that the Safties get out of these actors are top notch. It's like everyone is on top of their game. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean... And even in the name, so the main parts here, we have Adam Sandler, and I think anyone who's been paying attention knows Adam Sandler can act. Punch Drunk Love. Some people would argue Funny People, or uh, any Spanglish fans out there know that he can do <laughs> drama. Um, uh, but even like, so Idina Menzel, who's um, I was about to John Travolta her name there, uh, <laughs> uh, known for p playing Elsa in Frozen, right? Voicing Elsa, I should say. 
Uh, I don't think that was a mocap performance, but what do I know? <laughs> um, but she's known for her Broadway. She's known for her voice. No, they they cast her here. She doesn't sing any songs. There's no. They're not building any snowmans in this movie. I tell you that much. No. <laughs> um, and she. She gives like an incredible performance, not a ton of screen time, but every bit she has, she very much looks like she belongs in this world. Her scenes with Adam Sandler, she goes toe to toe with him. Absolutely. And matches him energy for energy. It's really, really great. Uh, And like just knowing to cast her in that role. And she even says, has said in interviews, like how grateful she was that they recognized her as someone capable of pulling off this part as they'd written it. She really does an excellent job. Um, but it's it's sprinkled with I mean like Keith Stanfield's in there and we're just huge Lakeith fans here and he's you know he delivers as Lakeith does um, and you've even got like newcomers Julia Fox which is one of those side pe- peeps literally someone from the Diamond District that's put in the most major usually these are kind of the periphery roles but no this is one of the main roles uh, I should say main supporting roles um, is played by someone who's literally known works around the Diamond District area which. Um, which you wouldn't have known. I felt like she was a veteran actor. So, well, that's the thing. Like the t- the really the the connect the um, the thing the tie the binds is they're all New York personalities. Yeah. Like these, I don't know where Keith Stanfield grew up, but he feels like a New York actor. Sure. Um, but Adam Sandler grew up in New York, like you said, and Dina Menzel has grew up in New York, and Julia Fox, and all these people. Uh, they're from New York, so they feel authentic. Um, but yeah, I think, again, that just lends the credibility to the believability to that world that they built. Uh, yeah, I just think speaking of like how um, frenetic it is and how unsettling it is, that's the one thing that in watching this movie, you're never comfortable. I mean, you're, you're on the edge of your seat. You can't you can't predict what's going to happen next uh, because it doesn't really make sense. Like it's just every decision that Adam Sandler's character makes is mind-blowingly stupid. Bad. <laughs> it's like so bad. It, it's it, all he does is make bad choices. Just nonstop. He is he has a lifetime of bad choices. Um but yeah, it, it's it's really it's really great. Uh the movie itself is incredibly well written. The story yeah. is perfectly flushed out. It's it's tight and compact. Um and it feels like something is happening constantly. Yeah. And that adds to the unsettling nature of it. But uh, I just want to point out, um, oh, who plays his his, his cousin? Oh, yeah. Arno? I don't know the actor's uh, name. Oh, Eric Bogosian. Oh, Bogosian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Incredible. He was incredible yes. in that role. Oh, so good. Yeah. He, and oh. there's just every every specific actor picked in this movie is perfect for me. I think... It couldn't have been cast better. Um, the direction was, uh, it was spot on. You know, the the editing is flawless. It's just I cannot give this movie enough praise. It's it's kind of ridiculous. I don't really have anything to complain about this movie. This is why I loved it so much, and it was by far my my favorite movie of the year. And I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, I I, I realize we haven't even given any type of a synopsis <laughs> when describing it, which is funny. Not that I think you really need one, but it's probably worth explaining just the gist of yeah this because it does go in directions that you you would never predict, and it's it's a movie that's structured, you know, intentionally that way. But Adam Sandler runs this jewelry shop, this diamond store in the Diamond District in New York City. He runs the shop, and um, he gets basically at the this is all at the very very beginning of the film. He has uh, been waiting for this very rare opal to arrive from Ethiopia. And he receives that opal 
on the same day that Kevin Garnett is visiting the shop and he's just kind of showing Kevin Garnett what the opal is and how it's all these different colors and how he's about to put it on auction and it's going to, you know, it's going to be worth over a million bucks, right? And so um, Kevin Garnett basically, and this is, again, this is not spoiling anything. It's all at the very beginning. Kevin Garnett has a play. He's in the playoffs. He has a playoff game that night in Philadelphia, and he just he wants to borrow the opal. And already yeah, I'm like, connection to don't, it right away. don't let him take the opal. I don't, I don't think this is a good, you know, I'm already, I'm already concerned. Um, and, uh, and he lets him take the opal. Uh, but as collateral, he asks Garnett if he can hold on to his Boston Celtics championship ring. Okay. So it literally the, the, the scene where Garnett agrees, he says, that's fair. That's fair. He takes it off. He, Drops it into Adam Sandler's. He plays uh, Howie or Howard Ratner is his character's name. He drops it into Howard's hands. And the second that he's holding it and, and Kevin Garnett's walking out of there, I, uh, I, my heart is racing because I know that that Boston Celtics championship ring, which is surely beloved by its owner, get Mr. Garnett. Irreplaceable, I would say. Irreplaceable. This is not a diamond that you can make up for by just paying up money. And I just know, even at the beginning of the film, the little bit I've been exposed to, to uh, Howard Ratner, that this is not a man capable of making good decisions, <laughs> even for a small period of time. Uh, I just know that things are going to go wrong and he, that he's just something's going to happen to that ring. And the, yeah, it's so a ticking time bomb, basically. He literally he drops in a ticking bomb into his hands and you're like, it's going to go off. Now the question <laughs> is when and how. Right. And so you're watching the movie, and that's just one part. The movie doesn't even base it around that ring, okay? It's, it's the opal is a big part of the movie, but um, just the fact that that little thing, and I was already like, oh no, this is bad. Everything's going to happen, it's going to be bad. And things do get bad, but it goes far beyond even that ring. And um, it's quite, it's really quite a destruction to behold. It's. Yeah, well, well that's the thing. He does own a diamond shop, he is a jeweler. But he is very, very small time. Very small yes. time. He is, yeah. And we find out right away that he is a gambling addict mm-hmm. and he loves basketball. So yes. those are the things that we're, we learn right off the bat. Um, he's very small time. He's a gambler. He loves basketball. And he has a big payday coming in that black opal. So those are the things like that's setting the table right there. Right. And we know that there he is, there are, um, he has debts. And there are people right. that are, I mean, from the get-go of the movie, we know that there are um, cronies of people to which he owes money to that are following him and are uh, asking for the money. And uh, we learn that there's more than one of these parties that want that money. Um, throughout the film, there are multiple bets placed on various sports and games and whatnot. I think this movie does a really good job of explaining the bets that are being made, what a parlay is, and like... I admittedly don't know a ton about uh, sports gambling. I've never done it myself. I know of just the very, very base maybe level of um, about odds and over-unders and the spread. Um, but this this movie does a good job of for the uninitiated describing like what exactly is at stake or what has to happen in order to win or lose this bet. And so just combining the terrible decisions and the spiraling downward of this of this individual's life due to their choices in addition to watching – uh, these games and the outcomes and there's not like a ton of game footage but there's enough that you're you're trying to you you know what has to happen for this individual to dig themselves out of this hole that keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper 
Yeah, there, there's two basically two big sequences of gambling on games, and I think they're both spectacular. Yeah, yeah it's they're, really <laughs> remarkable. It's there's really so remarkable. much fun. And um, well, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is is Howard isn't just professionally a screw up; he is personally a screw up as yes. well. Because you see how his bad decisions impact his life. You talked about his wife, and and um, but you also see it in his kids. His his he has two sons and a daughter. And his one son is just like him. He's a sports addict, and he's also gambling, which is, and he's a kid. So you just know that he set these kids on, on a terrible well, it, path. He even has a he has a conversation with his daughter that was so jarring because of how awkward it was. That at first I was like, okay, I I understand that they're the way they're communicating was you know it was so weird and bizarre that I realized like oh he just doesn't know how to talk to his kids. One and and, and I think like there were. Um, the conversation he has with the daughter, she kind of knows what's going on and she's just not, you can tell that she's kind of sick of his BS, but the way he's talking to her, I'm like, Oh, you just don't spend time with your children to know enough how you speak to say a 16 or 17 year old versus a 12 or 13 year old versus like just the way his communication style, it was really, really the way it was written. was actually and performed was pretty remarkable because it was just so clear that, Oh, this is a person that hasn't, doesn't have conversations with his kids. He doesn't know how to talk to his kids. Just doesn't, uh, has no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's no, pretty great. It's really and great. also the movie. The movie is set, I think, 2012. I think yeah. that's the year, and so it's a lot of old tech. I mean, uh, like I think he has like an iPhone four or something. Yeah, it's kind of it's a nice little blast to the past to go back yeah. to that old the technology. Not too distant past. No, yeah. it feels old though. <laughs> if you yeah, it at, does. It does when they're texting and they're doing that. Yeah, it. Yeah, it took me a while to realize, like, oh yeah, this is not 2019. This is, you know. 2012 or whatever which had yeah, to be yeah. written that way because it had to be written around real life nba games of which kevin garnett played in since these bets are being placed on what real life games that actually took place which is really really fascinating because kevin garnett was what the fourth nba player to be circling this role um this was a movie that was written with amari stoudemire in mind um who i guess when it came time to filming he they needed him to to shave his hair so he looked like amari from the year that they were doing the, I, I don't know if it was 2012 or what year it would have been, uh, but Amari, current Amari, was not willing to do that. So, imagine Amari Stoudemire. Amari Stoudemire. I hope he hasn't seen that cut yet. I really hope he hasn't seen the movie, because if he has, he he's you you know what he's thinking is just why didn't I just cut my hair? This would have been a like talk about leaving your le- a legacy and a mark being in that movie. Uh, and then it was uh, Joel Embiid was the most recent one until they couldn't do it because this NBA season started because filming got delayed and you're not allowed to film with active NBA players. It has to be in the offseason. And so um, they ended up Kevin Garnett was on the list of people that could potentially be interested. And of course, he was recently retired, recently ish. Um, and uh, and then Kobe Bryant, as we mentioned earlier, was someone that they apparently Josh Safdie rewrote the script to a different year. That would have worked with games that Kobe played, and he like wrote a really, really qu- like r- rough but complete um, draft of the film if it were based around Kobe. But then Kobe's people said actually he'd rather direct rather than star in it, and of course the Safety brothers weren't going to be hold- you know giving up directing duties. So eventually it got to Kevin Garnett, who was in this film. It's actually hard for me to imagine anyone else in this movie, especially Joel Embiid or Amari Stoudemire. I know Amari's not giving the performance Kevin did. I just to tell you that right now. There's just no Yeah, there's way. no chance about that. There's just no way. 
I mean, you know, Kevin Garnett is his magnetism, but is also just the electric nature of his personality on the court. And he's able to channel that in, in what is it? an actual controlled performance. It's quite good. This is not like an over the top bombastic type of this is an actual like really good, delicate, but strong performance from a, an athlete. It really is pretty, pretty remarkable. But yeah, it, it's you can you can tell that uh, if Kevin weren't seven feet tall, he probably would have been an actor. <laughs> he absolutely <laughs> kind of, could have been kind really. of difficult at seven feet. I think he's actually seven one or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of difficult when you're that tall to be an actor. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's amazing. Like he he's he has so good. actual performance chops. He has he has the facial expression, the subtlety, so um, everything about it, the nuance. Uh, I think uh, in, if you listen to interviews with Adam Sandler, he is so effusive in his praise of yeah. Kevin Garnett um, because it's warranted that he's really good and, and people recognize that. So he deserves a lot of credit for his performance. Absolutely. All right. Um, we're close to the hour mark. Uh, any closing thoughts from you, Mr. Alvarado, on uh, Uncut Gems? I think this is a movie that I think everyone should watch, even if you aren't a huge basketball fan. Um, I think in general, it's just one of the best movies of 2019 overall. So I would recommend this for anyone. Um, I, and I think that the Safties have a huge, huge future in front of them. This is really their second uh, movie with a budget. And I, it's hard to believe how good this movie is for their second time out with a budget. I think they're going to do amazing things in the future. And um, I'd love to see them actually do TV because mm. I think um, they have, for some reason, I feel like they have something inside of them in a longer formatted, like a mm. series or a, even a one-off season series, mini series, something like that. I'd really like to see them play in that genre. But uh, whatever they do, I'm fully on board. And I think they are the most exciting directors um, that I'm watching at this time. I think they're just, they're it for me. Those are the two guys. Wow. Well, Safety brothers, they have Aaron's full on seal of approval. Uh, I really am excited. I didn't even think about the, the whole Netflix or Amazon or doing something in the streaming, like Apple yeah. TV. Could you imagine Apple TV, Disney give them, plus give them nine, 10 hours to tell a story. Ooh, let them do a star Wars. The movie. pacing would be something. A star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, probably the first time I read Star Wars, I, I would think. Can we get uh, them direct season two of Mandalorian? <laughs> uh, oh, cast only locals. To, like, uh, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. I yeah. mean, so, some of the people that they cast in Uncut Gems looked like they could be alien species <laughs> in Star Wars. They look, they look straight out of Mos Eisley, straight out of a the hive of bro- scum and I'm thinking, about the, I'm thinking about the two brothers that confront him on the street. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. Well, go see Uncut Gems. It's currently the second highest grossing film in A24 history after Lady Bird. Um, I think it's about a million off. So it's grossed about $47 million. No idea oh, what the budget awesome. is on this film. Though I can't imagine it was more than 20 to $30 million. Um, But uh, Most yeah. Most of that was spent on the Opal. Yeah, that was all in the Opal. That was the op- real Opal budget. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we'll be back with... Uh, I don't even know what movie we're doing next because we are entering the dead season. We will talk Oscars. We'll talk. We'll do a, at least hopefully a pre and post Oscars pod. And we'll certainly be bringing Shannon back for those because she's our Oscars expert. Um, she's out today at the Sundance Film Festival. 
And so, uh, but she will be back to talk Oscars. Uh, but other than that, I think that's it, Aaron. Yeah, that'll do it from here. Okay, go see Uncut Gems. Thank you for listening to the Brave Little Podcast. Hold on to your butts. 